Please turn once again in our Bibles to that 16th chapter of the Gospel of John, where we find the text for our sermon this morning. John chapter 16 and the second verse, where we read these words in the Lord Jesus Christ who is speaking to his disciples. They shall put you out of the synagogues. Yea, the time cometh that whosoever killeth you will think that he doeth God's service. And especially these last words, Yea, the time cometh that whosoever killeth you will think that he doeth God's service. When the proto-reformer John Huss was set to be burned at the stake as a martyr for Jesus Christ, he observed that there was a plainly dressed man from the country who seemed to be busier than all the rest in gathering wood for the fire of his martyrdom. Such is the blind zeal that we often see in the persecutors, those who persecute God's people. And those whom God raises up to reform the church so that she may return to the word of God and be renewed in the purity of Christ, those are the ones that are often deemed as evil heretics. The killing of God's saints is horrible enough in all of its injustice and devilish cruelty, but then it's aggravated by it being done in the name of religion and in the name of God. In our text, the Lord Jesus Christ is warning his disciples that so the case will be that there will be those who not only put them out of the synagogues and the places of worship, but they will seek to kill them. And not only that, but they will seek to kill them in the name of God. That they think that in killing the saints of God, that they are doing service unto God. In the Greek there, literally, the text reads, becomes an hour that everyone killing you will think a service to bear before God. In other words, they will think that they are offering a service of worship unto God. Such is the deceit and the utter blindness and even madness of those who persecute and murder the holy saints of God. Now, this text, we should not think of it as simply applying to those that were in that immediate generation of the apostles to whom the Lord Jesus was speaking with this warning. As we read in Matthew Poole's commentary at this place, he says, I do not know of any reason why the words of our Savior here may not also extend as a prophecy to what has since been done and what is being done even under the tyranny of the Pope. Poole goes on to say, Indeed, these words also refer to others, even all those who will do the same thing to the end of the world. And so, with this perspective in mind, what I'd like to do for the sermon this morning is consider under two heads, two persecutors of God's people. First, one that is indeed contemporary to this warning that the Lord spoke to his disciples, a man that we read of in the scripture who is called Saul. And then secondly, I want us to look at another persecutor much later from the uh, 17th century, a king of France who persecuted severely the French Protestants known as the Huguenots his name was Louis Catours, or as we say in the English, Louis the Fourteenth. So again, I would like to take these words from our Savior, this warning that there'll be a time when 
whosoever killeth the disciples will think that he does God a service. I want us to see how this prophecy was fulfilled in these two men. Now, of course, certainly the persecutors of God's people are numerous. So I have just picked these two men. Again, first Saul that we read of in the scriptures of the New Testament, and secondly, King Louis XIV of France. And so first, let's consider this man named Saul. And we read of him in the book of Acts. If you would turn there with me, please, in Acts chapter 7, towards the end of the chapter. Here the context is about that most holy martyr of the church of Jesus Christ, a deacon by the name of Stephen. And we read in verse 58 of the seventh chapter of Acts that they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at a young man's feet, presumably so that they would be more free to throw the stones at Stephen. And this young man, we read, was called Saul. Verse 59, And they stoned Stephen, calling upon God, and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he kneeled down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. That's a euphemistic expression, meaning that he died. Chapter 8, And Saul, this young man Saul, was consenting unto his death. In that time there was a great persecution against the church, which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, this this young man, he made havoc of the church, entering into every house, and hailing men and women committed them to prison. This Saul, the persecutor of God's people, we also read about in chapter 26 of the book of Acts, where he confesses with his own mouth the things that he had done against God's people. We read in chapter 26, verses 9 through 11, he says, I verily thought with myself that I ought to do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth, which thing I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints did I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests, and when they were put to death, I gave my voice against them, and I punished them oft in every synagogue, and compelled them to blaspheme, and being exceeding mad against them, I persecuted them even unto strange cities." We read further about this persecutor Saul, what he did, again, from the book of Acts in chapter 9, in the opening of the chapter, we read, And Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went unto the high priest and desired of him letters to Damascus, to the synagogues, that if he found any of this way, this way is an expression denoting the religion of the Lord Jesus Christ, of the religion of Christians, that if Saul had found any of this way, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. Now, the Lord God, in His infinite mercy and loving kindness, chose this man Saul to be a vessel for his glory, even that Saul would be transformed 
that he would be regenerated by the Holy Spirit, that he would be made a completely new man. And as the scripture says, behold, all things, all the former ways have passed. I say that the Lord God was pleased to convert this man and change his name that you will recognize from Saul to Paul. And this man became Paul the Apostle. And where we left off here in chapter 9 of Acts is actually an account of this conversion, the conversion of Saul to Paul. As we continue to read in verse 3 of chapter 9, And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven. And he fell to the earth and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And he trembling and astonished said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And the Lord said unto him, Arise, and go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. And we begin to see, even within the same chapter, what the Lord does intend for the Apostle Paul, for this man called Saul and converted. As we read in verses 15 and 16, as the Lord is speaking to another brother, a Christian, named Ananias. The Lord tells him that in respect to this Saul or Paul, the Lord says, He is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. This was the calling of Paul, that he was to bear witness of the name of the Lord Jesus Christ from the lowest to the highest, from the common man to king, from the Gentiles to the children of Israel, and that he must learn how he was to suffer, we read, many things for the sake of the name of Jesus Christ. Also, I want you to consider when Paul was blinded by this light from the Lord. And so he was fasting and praying for three days, as we read in verses 9 and 11 of the ninth chapter of Acts. What do you think he was thinking about until Ananias came to restore his sight? Can you imagine kind of feelings and thoughts that filled Saul, who was to become Paul, when he realized that, again, Jesus Christ was the Lord, the very one whom he was persecuting. Now, though we know that the Apostle Paul became a great servant for the Lord Jesus Christ and a great evangelist and one who uh, built up the church of God. Yet his past was never forgotten by Paul, and it kept him humble in his Christian walk. We read, for example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and this is after his conversion. Paul says, as we read in verse 8, And here he's in the context of this 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians. He's talking about how that the resurrected Lord Jesus appeared before many. And he says, And last of all, he was seen of me also, as of one born out of due time. In other words, as if he had an untimely birth. Verse 9, For I am the least of the apostles, And I'm not meet to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. 
But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace which was bestowed upon me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. And so the Lord used Paul's great sin of persecuting the church to form his perspective of service for Christ's church. We read similarly in 1 Timothy chapter 1 from verse 13. Paul, speaking of himself again, says that before he was a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious, but he says, I have obtained mercy. And then in verse 15, he says, This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. You see? The apostle sees himself as the chief of all sinners. The greatest sinner of all sinners because he persecuted the church of Christ before he was converted. And so I think it's quite notable that as Saul, the persecutor of the church, when the Lord Jesus Christ confronts him on the road to Damascus, one of the questions that Paul asks is, Who art thou, Lord? Who art thou? When I read that, I can't help but think that there are many, many who have persecuted the saints of Jesus Christ who will be asking the same question when they die or on the judgment day, they will see that it is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ who is sitting on the throne. What a terrible and awful sight that will be for them. And think of the Muslims who also kill Christians in the name of Allah. And think again, that in so doing that they are rendering service unto Allah. And they think that in so doing they will gain paradise. But instead, the reality is they'll be faced like Saul was with this question, Who are you, Lord? And when they see that it is Jesus Christ, Messiah the Prince, as we read in the scripture in respect to hell, what a gnashing of teeth, what, what weeping there will be when they see that they have persecuted the very one that they thought they were rendering service unto. That is, that they will see for the first time that their God is not the true and living God and that they were actually persecuting the one who is. And that is our first head as we consider one who did think that in killing the saints of God, he was doing God a service. But let us consider now the second man for our sermon this morning. The second man who is a king of France named Louis XIV. King Louis XIV was a proud man and full of great conceit and vanity. He thought highly of himself and enjoyed the pleasures of life to its extreme. He delighted in living in great luxury and extravagance. King Louis XIV was also the one that created that sumptuous palace in that city that we call uh, Versailles, or it is in the French Versailles. And his life and his rule, sadly, was characterized by this self-centeredness. Even as his second wife, Madame de Maintenon, said of him around the time of his death that, quote, he had never loved anyone but himself. And so this king, 
Louis Quatorze, as we say in the French, flattered himself also in looking at himself as a king who would stamp out these so-called Protestant heretics from the face of the earth. At Versailles, statues were made in honor of the king. One large marble statue by Louis Le Comte, which was destroyed during the French Revolution, shows Louis XIV standing in antique armor with the right foot on the head of a Huguenot and the left foot on the Protestant's book from which we see snakes emerging. Also, there were commemorative coins that were made showing Louis XIV setting his foot on heresy while this figure of religion is crowning him. King Louis XIV saw himself as doing God a service, as our text says, in persecuting and murdering God's people, even those French Protestants known as the Huguenots. By the way, the Huguenots is a term uh, in the French we would say Huguenot, and in English you may often hear Huguenots, but uh, for this sermon I want to use a compromised pronunciation of Huguenots. Huguenots. The Huguenots, the, the Protestants in France, King Louis XIV flattered himself in thinking that he had destroyed these so-called heretics from his realm. And as, as I found in Samuel Bastide's work called Pages or Page d'Histoire Protestante, this King Louis believed that in his horrible persecution of the Huguenots, that he could find forgiveness for his own immoral conduct. And so again, as we read in our text, that whosoever killeth you will think that he doeth God's service. The persecution of the French Protestants under Louis XIV was so heavy that one of the first seals of the Huguenot Church portrayed that scene from the Gospels when the boat of the disciples were covered with waves, and around this seal we read the words, Sauve-nous, Seigneur, nous perissons, save us, Lord, we perish. Let me give you a little bit of background as to the persecution of the Protestants of France as it leads up to the time of Louis Fourteenth. Numerous Protestants were burned at the stake, even under Francois or Francis I of France, who reigned from 1515 to 1547. But one of the most infamous and horrific persecutions of God's people is an event that we refer to as the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre, which started first in Paris, August 24th in 1572. At that time, the King of France was Charles IX. He was a young king. At the time of this horrible massacre, he was only 22 years old. And his mother, Catherine de Médicis dominated his ruling of the kingdom. He was, he was a weak king that was influenced strongly by the direction of his mother. And so the queen mother came up with a plot to destroy the Huguenot movement within France. The religious wars of France had already uh, been underway by this time, and the Huguenots, despite severe persecution, always seemed to increase rather than decrease in number. And while open force against the French Protestants failed her, the Queen Mother came up with a plan, a deceitful plan, to destroy the Protestants. And 
what she did was she she advocated for an arranged wedding between her own daughter Marguerite de Valois, who was the sister of Charles the King, Charles the Ninth. A wedding between her, Marguerite, and a Protestant prince of Navarre named Henry or Henri. And so the idea was that by having this royal wedding in Paris, that many of the Huguenot nobles and princes and military leaders, such as the Admiral Gaspard de Coligny, would all be gathered together in Paris for this event, for this wedding. The wedding took place on the 18th of August, and four days later, on the 22nd, there was an attempted assassination of this Admiral Coligny, and he was wounded in his arms by someone shooting down at him from a window as he passed by on his horse. But he survived that attempt. But just two days later would be the beginning of this great slaughter of the Protestants in Paris. At the start of a signal that had been prepared beforehand in the middle of the night, Roman Catholic soldiers and and then the common people that became mobs cruelly massacred numbers of Protestant men and women and children. Their bodies were uh, put into carts uh, and moved to the Seine River where they were dumped there, and their accounts of the, uh, the river turning red in color from the blood. So we're speaking of a great number of saints who died in this fashion somewhere in the neighborhood of 3,000. And one of the first victims of this massacre was this, this Admiral Coligny, who I said had survived this uh, assassination attempt just two days prior to that. And also, in connection with our sermon text, that there are those who think that in persecuting God's people, they are rendering a service unto God. We read of another account during this massacre in Paris, that there was one called Tavan, who was a marshal of France. He was an ignorant, I'm getting this from an edition of Fox's Book of the Martyrs, he was an ignorant, superstitious soldier who joined the fury of religion to the rage of party, rode on horseback through the streets of Paris, crying to his men, let blood, let blood, bleeding is as wholesome in August as in May. In the memories of the life of this enthusiastic written by his son, we are told that the father, many years later, being on his deathbed and making general confession of his actions, the priest said to him with surprise, What? No mention of St. Bartholomew's massacre? To which Tavon replied, well, I consider it as a meritorious action that will wash away all my sins. Do you see? So this man thought that by butchering the Protestants, it was a good work, a meritorious work, that would actually atone for his sins. What a surprise this man must have had when he died, when he would come on that great last day of judgment before the face of God. The wickedness during this massacre of St. Bartholomew's Day was at such an extremity because, you see, the massacre was not just limited to Paris but in many other parts of France as well. We read of an account from a town called Orléans where the massacres began on August the 26th, the Catholic extremists herded the Protestants of the city to the city wall and slaughtered them, and as they were doing so, they mocked their victims by chanting the opening verse of Psalm 43, which reads, Vindicate me, O God, and rescue me from wicked men. Because, again, the Huguenots were known as psalm singers. And so 
these wicked, wicked Catholic murderers were mocking God and His Holy Word as they slaughtered His people, these Huguenots, by chanting from the Psalms. And so, what what happened to this Protestant groom who was at this wedding in Paris? Again, his name was Henri or Henry of Navarre. He narrowly escaped being killed himself in this massacre, and he survived that bloody scene. And later, in God's good providence, this Protestant prince of Navarre became king of France. And he was called King Henry IV. He was a very popular king. He showed much concern and care for the common folk of France, unlike any other king had done. He was nicknamed Le Bon Roi, or the Good King of France, which can be opposed to the title of Louis XIV, which was Le Roi Soleil, or the Sun King, which suits well his pomp and extravagance and pride. But Henry IV, as I say, was known as the Good King, and many historians agree that this popular Good King would have done much good for France if he had reigned for a longer time. But sadly, his reign was cut short by an assassin, by a Roman Catholic activist, uh, murdered the king. But before the king was murdered, King Henry signed something that's called the Edict of Nantes. Nantes is the name of the town and the castle where he signed this edict. In fact, Rachel and I and our family visited there when we were in France. But This edict that Henry signed was to give some measure of protection and some measure of liberty to Protestants in France. And so, after Henry IV was assassinated, his son Louis XIII reigned from 1610 to 1643, and the persecution of the Huguenots began again. And then finally, under the despotic rule of Louis XIV, the persecution reached its peak. For what King Louis XIV did was he revoked this Edict of Nantes that his grandfather, King Henry IV, has signed. And so, what measure of liberty and protection was given to Protestants in France by the Edict of Nantes was now revoked by Louis Fourteenth, This is called the revocation of the Edict of Nantes. So Louis Fourteenth, in the middle of an outing between the hunt and the banquet on October 17, 1685, signed this revocation of the Edict of Nantes that his grandfather, Henry IV, had declared would be irrevocable. Irrevocable, though Louis Fourteenth revoked it. As Louis XIV saw to the destruction of Protestantism in France, he justified this illegal act by hypocritically asserting that most of his subjects, which subscribe to the, quote, so-called reform religion, or la religion prétendue réformée, that most of them had recanted. And so there was no need to keep this Edict of Nantes by his grandfather, Henry IV, in place. But despite the king saying this, France was quickly emptying. About one-fourth of the country was depopulated because of the immigration of the Protestants fleeing for their lives. Louis XIV not only persecuted the Protestants severely, but he even made it illegal for them to flee the country. Nevertheless, during the 15 years after Louis' revocation, approximately 250,000 to 300,000 Protestants managed to escape the country. 
It is impossible, however, to estimate the total number of immigrants for the immigration of the Huguenots continued until the French Revolution. Now, let's speak a little bit more about this revocation that spurred on so much persecution uh, under Louis XIV. Louis XIV's revocation of 1685 took away all legal standing for French Protestants. Their marriages were called concubinage. In other words, you could see in that name the term concubine. And so the idea is that if Protestants were married in the Protestant church by Protestant ministers, their marriages were considered illegal, illegitimate. And so then, under Louis XIV, they were considered to be uh, not lawfully married couples, but rather couples who were just living together outside of matrimony. And so, as the marriages were deemed illegal, so the children of these Protestant marriages were deemed illegitimate. And as a result, the children, as they grew older, were not permitted any inheritance from their parents, nor even work as illegitimate children. And under the pretext of permitting the membership into the official Roman Catholic religion, many Protestant children were kidnapped under Louis XIV's command from their families so they could be raised in convents. These children were taken from their families even as young as at the age of seven. Not only this, but the hatred for the French Protestants even extended into their death. For Protestants who died were not admitted to cemeteries, but instead their bodies were thrown into garbage dumps. And while destroying the church buildings of the Protestants and raising them down to the ground, it was often done by these Roman Catholic mobs who did them to the sounds of trumpets and drums and celebration. In fact, their wickedness, their perversity was so great that in, in one, at least in one case, the Huguenot church in Caen, the Roman Catholics would play a game of bowls, les boules. You know, it's a game, it's a form of lawn bowling, rolling the balls on the lawn. But these uh, Roman Catholics would play this game of bowling with skulls from the church cemetery, the, uh, the Protestant church cemetery. And throughout the whole country of France, Huguenot church buildings were pulled down to the ground. And so it was no longer legal for them to meet together for worship. And as a result, they began to meet secretly in the woods, at farms, in caves, or in barns, under the cover of darkness. Their only light came from oil lamps that they brought with them, or the stars of the heavens. The worshippers sat on rocks or on the grass wet with dew. And as a result, the Huguenot Church began to be called l'Église du Désert. In other words, the Church of the Desert or the Church of the Wilderness. In Nîmes, it was necessary to give up holding night services, so they convened during the day in some quarries about 20 miles to the west of the city. Above the high wall, the rocks rising above the pulpit, which they had brought, which was ingeniously crafted to look like a barrel when it was all folded up, they had a lookout standing up on the high rocks of this quarry with an enormous umbrella. And so the understanding was that he would signal them if he would see any danger coming. And the signal simply would be that he would close the umbrella that he had opened, standing up on this cliff, this high rock in the quarry, so that everyone would see the warning and flee for their lives. 
Also, the Huguenots' Bibles and Psalters and devotional books, sermons and catechisms were burned in innumerable fires. But many Huguenots made clever hiding places for these precious books of God. They would hide them in their homes and then bring them out during family worship. They did family worship knowing that their very lives would be endangered by doing so. And so some of the family members would be standing watch, looking out the various windows of the house while they were conducting family worship. And then when finished, they would return these Bibles and Psalters back to these hiding places in their house. Also, these Bibles and Psalters were published at much smaller sizes than, than usual, oftentimes so small you could fit it in the palm of your hand, and so they could be easily concealed. Now, these precious books were so well hidden that some were not even discovered in these old homes until many years later. In fact, in a museum where we visited when we were in France, we saw a Psalter that had been discovered hidden in a wall for over 200 years. And it was discovered during the renovation of the home. Now, hiding places were made not only for these holy books, but also for men of God. The Huguenot pastors risked death at every moment. The king's soldiers searched day and night to find them. Some were hidden under a flagstone in the kitchen floor or at the bottom of cupboards. In fact, again, we were in a museum where we saw such a hiding place where these boards of wood were at the floor of a china cabinet, and you could remove those boards and there would be a dugout hole as a hiding place for these Huguenot ministers. Or there may be a hiding place behind the fireplace or a place uh, between the rafters and the ceiling. And so these men of God, these, these pastors who risked their lives for the ministry of the gospel of Jesus Christ also were very clever and ingenious in hiding from their persecutors. The Huguenot pastors had to not only endure hunger, cold, heat, and rain, and sleeping with only the earth for a bed and the sky for a cover, but also they were often in danger of false brethren. There was one pastor, a minister named Béranger, who came to a house where he was invited to stay for the night. But when he arrived, he found only a child. And so the preacher asked, where is your papa? In the French language, the word for father or dad is papa. And the child responded in saying, Oh, he has gone to tell the soldiers that the minister is supposed to come tonight. And the minister responded by saying, Well, tell your papa that the minister decided not to wait for the soldiers. Now, sadly, many of these brave ministers for Jesus Christ were caught. And they were often sent to these ships of war where they would, under very harsh conditions, be pulling these very large oars in the hull of the ship. And many of them perished in battles. Or, alternatively, they were tied to a large wheel where they would be tortured by being bludgeoned to death. There was a highly respected pastor, ministered by the name of Claude Brousson, who returned to France from Holland knowing the risk that he would take in so doing. But he remembered the Huguenots who were without many shepherds, as you could imagine. And he so earnestly wanted to comfort them. He had a pastor's heart. And so he risked all danger and returned to France. Finally, he was captured at Oloron, and he was martyred on the wheel, as I just described, at Montpellier in 1698. But the executioner... Uh, the torturer who had murdered him 
was so moved that he avowed, quote, No other condemned man has made me tremble like this man has. Such was the holiness of these men of God. I'd like to end this account of the persecution under Louis XIV with the Durands. There was a minister named Pierre Durand, Durand, who attracted thousands of listeners to his preaching. And so he would preach out in the desert or the wilderness, and many would come to hear him at peril of their lives. He evaded capture many times, and so the Roman Catholics decided to punish him by capturing his family. And so at the age of 72, the minister's father, Etienne Durhan, was abducted from his own home and shut up in a fort at Brascou. But before leaving for prison, this elderly father advised his daughter, Marie, Marie Durhan, whom the father would never see again, to give her hand in marriage to a friend of the family, one named Mathieu Serre, so that she would not be without protection in the face of these persecutors. The newlyweds were just getting settled into their father's house when the king's soldiers, the dragoons, burst in and seized them both in the name of the king. Mathieu Serre was taken to the fort of Brescu to join his father-in-law there. Marie was sent to La Tour de Constance, or the Tower of Constance. Again, we also visited that place when we were staying in France. Marie was only 19 years old when she was sent to the Tower. Though she was a newlywed, she would never again see her husband in this world. Marie's brother, the minister, Pierre, was finally captured and hanged on the gallows in Montpellier. Now his sister, Marie Durand, was shut up in this tower, Le Tour de Constance, for 38 years. 38 years. But during that time, she was a great encourager in the faith to the other Protestant women who were imprisoned there. And on one of the stones that make up the rim that surrounds the circular opening in the center of the floor, she carved this famous word in the French, resiste, or in the English, simply resist. Resist. I'd like to close uh, with some application. I'll just give a couple of applications here. My brothers and sisters, we should be comforted with the knowledge that God is a just God. He is holy and that he will not uh, wink at the sin of the wicked. He will not just dismiss it out of hand. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. We can take comfort, I say, in knowing that there will come a day when God will certainly right all of these injustices. My brothers and sisters, we should not grumble when we think that we have hardship in our lives. We should remember these martyrs, these faithful Huguenots, and all the martyrs of Christ. And we should pray to God that we would be faithful to Him as they were. Another application is that we should also be encouraged by the demonstration of the faithfulness of these martyrs for Christ. We should praise the Lord for these brothers and sisters of ours in the Lord. For though they may live hundreds of years prior to us, they are still our brothers and sisters in Christ. And they gave all that they had, even their own precious lives, to glorify Him. We should join in the admonition of the author of the book of Hebrews. So we read in the opening of chapter 12, 
Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight in the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God, For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. For ye have not resisted unto blood, striving against sin. You see, we as 21st century Christians in America have not suffered the kinds of persecutions that these martyrs suffered. As the scripture says here, we have not yet resisted unto blood. Now, we don't know what's in store for us in the future, do we? We don't know what may become of uh, Christians in our country and persecutions that may break out against us, whether it be in our generation or our children's generation or perhaps our grandchildren's generation. But unless the current course of our nation is turned away from its present course, we will certainly see these things come to pass in our own land. And so we should not take the comforter of our lives for granted. And as Stan said before the service, we should be willing to give our lives for Christ if he should so call us to make such a sacrifice. Let us pray. O blessed Lord God and Heavenly Father, we do praise you and thank you for the witness of Jesus Christ and how you are pleased to be glorified in taking those weak things of the world, those things that are shameful to the world, people who the world is ashamed of, thou, O Lord, are pleased to use, to glorify yourself, even that we may be raised up in triumph and in glory with our elder brother, the Lord Jesus Christ, that we may inherit all those blessings that the Father has lavished upon him, and so that we may rejoice and live in eternal bliss with Christ, not just in heaven, upon our death, but throughout eternity in the new heavens and the new earth as we read in the scripture. O Lord, we pray that you would be with us now in the remainder of this service and throughout this Christian Sabbath day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.